Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. There is no defining between a personal experience and a collective experience. We belong to each other. Everything that is in me is also felt and experienced around me. Welcome back to episode 55 of What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. In today's episode, I'm interviewing Rebecca Giacomantonio. Rebecca facilitates decolonized therapeutic communities of practice for white women and non-binary people who crave healing and collective liberation. In this episode, Rebecca shares her story of burnout inside the nonprofit sector and why it took her taking a necessary pause from her career in restorative justice work to actually restore herself. By stepping away from working and living in the American nonprofit gauntlet and diving deep into a special community in Guatemala, which she'll share more about in this episode, Rebecca was able to step into a model of healing that works on collective, interpersonal, and systemic levels. Since her return, she has created the space that she needed, the Interdependence Incubator. It's for white folks who want to free themselves of toxic conditioning, harmful behavior patterns, and shame. In today's episode, we're talking about a lot of the work that happens inside the incubator, the rewiring of our brains, settling our nervous system, and practicing radical self-love. Rebecca has really pushed the way I think about community healing, and you'll hear a lot on this episode around the limitations of doing this work in silos or solo. My guess is this conversation might create more questions than it gives you answers, but I hope you'll enter this space with an open mind because if we're actually going to be a sector rooted in change, we need to learn how to change and to venture into the unknown without the burnout and breakdown that has defined so much of our work and our lives in this sector for way too long. Rebecca understands this, and I am so grateful for the way she's pushing our community into this conversation. So let's dive in and meet Rebecca. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Rebecca Giacomantonio. Rebecca, thank you for joining me um, on What the Fundraising. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. I love the title of this podcast. It's so fun. (laughs) So I'm really happy to be here. I hope it always sets a good tone that we're going to have fun, even when we're talking about really hard things um, that Mm -hmm. we're going to bring some like lightness and levity and realness to the conversation. So why don't we just start with you introducing yourself to everyone, sharing a little bit about your background and really what brings you to our conversation today. Yeah, as Mallory said, my name is Becca or Rebecca Giacomantonio. I am originally from Maine, which is the unceded territory of the Wabanaki Nation, our confederacy. And I have spent the last decade and a half working in nonprofits, specifically around like 
ending mass incarceration and decriminalize, just decriminalizing our society. I worked a bit with exoneration and things like that. And that work really brought me to restorative justice and transformative justice work, which is where I spent the bulk within the nonprofit industry. I was also an accidental fundraiser, which is something I've heard you say, Mallory, that I was like, oh my God, yes, that is exactly what happened. <laughs> oh, hey, you're a good writer. Why don't you just write everything for us forever now? Like that's part of your job. But I spent a lot of my time as I mentioned, doing restorative justice and transformative justice work, which is very much at its core about healing in community and always felt really moved and interested and invested in what would it look like for us to actually heal as collectives on the personal, interpersonal, and systemic level so that we can create the change in the world that we're like hoping for, the vision of the world. That was always the piece of the work that most inspired me. And after severe burnout, which like led to a nervous breakdown, I moved to Guatemala, tended some wounds for a few years and just studied what it would look like to actually build a new world from some com communities of indigenous Guatemalans that I lived alongside in that time and came back to the States briefly re-entered the nonprofit industry and was like, nope, not for me. <laughs> and then started cultivating spaces for white folks, white women and non-binary people who crave healing to practice freedom. That's what I do now. I have also spent a lot of time in Guatemala and I had read a little bit about that part of your story, but I'm curious, what did that experience or what were some of the biggest light bulb moments that overcame you both in community there, but also in part of your um, personal exploration mm. journey, which are, I know, very connected, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally connected. Impossibly. It would be impossible to separate them, <laughs> but I, I was raised conservative evangelical in a very sort of black and white toxic church. Not all churches are toxic. Mine was a hundred percent toxic and left me with some like serious spiritual trauma as well. And so I say that because when I moved to Guatemala, obviously or maybe not obviously, Guatemala is a very Catholic country. They have really adopted Catholicism in many places. It's like a syncretist Catholicism. So it like matches with some of the indigenous practices and traditions. But when I moved there, I moved to the second largest city, which is called Shela, and stumbled into a community that was actually like a missionary community, but they were not missionaries from other places. They were all from the town that they lived in. They were all Guatemalans from Shela, called themselves missionaries, and were like doing Catholic, really liberation theology work, like living among the poor. And I think for me, I had no example of religious tradition that was like actually about loving and systems change and that was here for the conversations on injustice and poverty and inequality and like actually really loving our neighbors and like being in community and taking care of each other and knowing each other's names. And so for me, it was so much of my journey at the time was also like tending lots of old wounds, like burnout. Yes. But it was so much more than just my burnout. It was like my whole story collapsing <laughs> into that moment of the nervous breakdown and then and healing that required going all the way back and forwards. And the time is not linear if you ask me so <laughs> it was everything all at once and finding myself in that community I didn't know that I needed and they just showed me so many things but one of the pieces of it that felt deeply healing on a personal level and also deeply inspiring for me on like my systems change and change work was like totally in 
for mystery and non-duality and no one cared about answers. None of them cared <laughs> about knowing what the right answer to any question is. So I'd come to them with my boatload of feelings <laughs> and I'd be like, I need to know what is the meaning of life? That's where I was. I was like really in it. And they were just like, oh, it's just to be present. Like just be in here. That's it. So summarize, boil that down. It was like stumbling my way into this community of missionaries that were like liberation theologists and watching them live life with such a deep commitment to earth and other people and just being present and loving. That was just, oh, there's a whole other way of being in the world that I just never knew about. Wow. What about either your time there, or maybe this goes back to the restorative justice work led you to that conclusion that I know is the foundation of so much of your work, which is that self and community cannot be separated, mm -hmm. particularly mm -hmm. when it comes to healing um, mm -hmm. and liberation. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think, again, it's many different layers. One of the moments for me that sort of put me on the trajectory of even being able to be open to the sort of things that I saw and, and learned in Guatemala was I did a lot of trainings. I lived in New York City. That's where I went to college. And then I stayed there and got trained in restorative justice along the way in parallel with my bachelor's degree. And I was in a training for restorative justice when someone said, a snide remark about me in the check-in round. So if you're familiar at all with circles or restorative justice, there's a talking piece and you pass the talking piece around and everybody gets to say something. And we do that to check in. So it'll be like, how are you arriving today? And everybody gets to answer. And there was a person who was sitting next to me. And when she got the talking piece, she said something like, I'm sitting in between the two texters. So I'm really frustrated. And it was total shade, like just total shade on me. And I felt really embarrassed. My dog had been in the hospital that day. So I was like checking in with my partner to see if the dog was okay, whatever. It's not something that I normally would do in a circle, but in that circumstance, that's what I was doing. And I just took it. I was like, it doesn't matter. It was just a small comment. Nobody cares. It's not a big deal. Just carry on the day. I didn't say anything. And the whole day passed. And at the end of the day, the last person to speak in our checkout round was moved to tears and started having this visible reaction. And she said, harm happened this morning and no one said anything about it. And I just feel like the energy in the space was off and it made it really hard for me to trust the process, whatever. And she was talking about that one mark, remark that person made for me. And I, in the moment was like, it doesn't matter. It's just me that was hurt. Nobody cares. Mm. And the whole day had been off for everybody in that circle, but no one said anything <laughs> except for this one person because of that one comment that the person sitting next to me had said. And we spent the next like two hours just processing this one sentence and how it affected all of us in the space. And that was when I realized there is no defining between a personal experience and a collective experience. We belong to each other. Everything that is in me is also felt and experienced around me. And we all have different experiences of that thing and our truths and experiences of that moment matter and they're different and they're textured and they belong, they are worthy of being heard. And we all have an experience when one of us does. And, and that was me, the beauty of restorative justice work is that you can feel the moment when the people who are in conflict start to see each other for the first time, as they start to see themselves in each other for the first time. And the space just changes. The energy is just, it's unbelievable. So anyways, hmm. being in that and seeing, experiencing before I could verbalize it, experiencing our mutual belonging, and then seeing in Guatemala 
with all of my like stuff, like all, every, I was just raw, I was completely <laughs> raw. Like I was just an exposed human, like a naked mole rat. I don't even know how to say it. Like, I, just no, I had absolutely no filters. Like I, everything was just stripped. And so mm. I was just watching the Guatemalans live in a way that was in alignment with this understanding that they belong to each other, mm. which I had felt only in the context of restorative justice practices. So mm. experiencing it and then seeing it lived out, I was like, everything needs to change. Conceptually, how we think about healing, we belong to each other and it's going to change. And the, the world that we're trying to bring in as people in social justice work or community work or change work or whatever you call it, like nonprofit, whatever it is, the world we want to live in will require that we remember we belong to each other and start working from that knowledge rather than from the individualism that we're conditioned to live out as part of dominant culture in the United States. I really appreciate what you shared. And I really appreciate that story. And I'll be honest, like until right now, I think I could probably pull a handful of experiences like that, but that I've never thought about or further mm -hmm. consciously, at least, or called out what was happening in the room or, or what wasn't happening because things like that had happened. But I'm really curious, we've talked a lot on this show about the structural challenges that mm -hmm that keep us apart or that make us forget that we belong to each other. Mm -hmm. But what do you think on an individual level, mm -hmm. you know, you talk about in your work a lot embodiment and mm -hmm. maybe even before we define embodiment, what do you define as disembodiment? How do you describe the disconnect, the disassociation that we have found ourselves in? And then we can maybe think about what does that mean in terms of where we go? Yeah. Yeah, I think we're really familiar with what disembodiment looks like, actually, because it's everywhere. Oh, I drank too much coffee today, and now I'm jittery. But then as they're doing it, they're drinking more coffee. <laughs> We've all had that moment at the cafe or at the banquet or at the conference where someone's all, man, I've had too much coffee. But they're pouring themselves another cup. There's a part of them that realizes their body is saying, absolutely not. And then there's, I'm just on muscle memory. Maybe I don't even actually feel it. I just get the sense that I've had too much coffee or I don't even know, but we see it all the time. People saying one thing and doing another, or whenever we be people saying something and then doing something else, you mm -hmm. have to be out of alignment or out of your body to be verbally recognizing something and with your body doing something else. Or another example is like our bodies will show you. So if we have really dry skin or our hair is dry or our nails are breaking, skin is cracking, like that is telling me that that person's not in their body because their body is telling them, I mm. need some love, like put some lotion on my hands. I need collagen or calcium or whatever. I need something here. And it's clear to us, we can see that in other people, but they can't see it in themselves because they're actually not there. And then there's some other telltale signs, which is something that I've experienced like, more personally is especially within the nonprofit sector, I have worked a lot of EDs, I'm in a position where I've been hired by board members more than once <laughs> or mm -hmm. hired because board members wanted me there. And so EDs and I often have a stressful relationship because the board has been like, this girl, we need Rebecca. We need Becca here to do some things. And so I have this relationship, but what'll happen, you'll see folks in leadership or folks in the nonprofit industry 
who have gone to the workshops, they've read all the books, they've done the webinars, the professional development, the self-care, the DEI, all this stuff. And they'll actually be teaching other people, right? Sometimes they're actually onboarding other staff members or like teaching you. In my case, like I'll be receiving lessons from people and in another context, do the very thing they just taught me not to do. And when you bring it to them, they're like, I would never do that because that's just not my values. I would just never do a thing like that. There's an email. I could show you the receipts. You did it. You did the thing that you said that we shouldn't mm. do. Like I can, I can show it to you. And if you get to a point where I actually do show them what they've said or done, it's like they have seen a ghost. They mm. don't recognize themselves in their text. They're just not there. They're just not present. And yeah, I hope that's a helpful answer to that question. There's so many different layers and levels maybe mm-hmm. of disembodiment. But Mm -hmm. I'm curious when folks are trying to become a more embodied leader, what do Mm -hmm. you recommend as the first step? Because I can imagine that it's a scary process and there are a lot of reasons why it's happening that Mm -hmm. feel more comfortable in the moment perhaps. So what, how do people start to dip their toe in this work? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I talk about in the group that I run which is called the Interdependence Incubator, is that we have been told that mindfulness and meditation and embodiment, all these things have to look a certain way and you have to sit in a certain position for a certain Mm -hmm. amount of time and do the certain kind of breathing and and then move through these specific postures and all this stuff. And it's like, Mm -hmm. first of all, most of that stuff was created by folks with a male anatomy and like male body, male physiology. So the postures that we're getting into are actually meant for that specific physiology, which is Mm -hmm. not to say that folks with a female physiology can't be comfortable in them, but it's just like, just hold that into consideration. The history of yoga and mindfulness and meditation is a fascinating one for another conversation but basically what started out as a women's dance practice basically or movement practice got co-opted by men and then women were excluded from it and then it became what it is today that's a very oversimplified version of the story but what i'm saying is it was created with a rigid structure on purpose and that is not gonna work for every body every space body to start becoming an embodied leader just breathe just take one deep breath and be there for that breath and then you can build out maybe you do it a couple times a day i always tell the folks in the incubator set a timer on your phone that just says breathe and when the timer on your phone goes off just take a deep breath that's it just one deep breath whatever posture you're in doing a handstand or whatever you're doing like just take a deep breath and be there for it it sounds oversimplified but you get this it just becomes part of your practice and then all of a sudden every time you're taking a deep breath you're not sighing anymore you're taking a deep breath and you're there for the deep breath and it just builds from there oh can I actually just put my phone down while I pet my dog just like me and my dog a tender moment here and maybe I can just look out the window for a second and notice the tree and it's these little things that we keep doing them they're attractive we're gonna want more they're very Mm. addictive I will tell you that it's a warning label Petting your dog and actually paying attention to the pets, it's a real delight. And you're going to want more of it. Just a warning. You're going to want to keep petting your dog with your whole mind and your whole body. So yeah, that's how I would start. That's how I coach my clients to just begin where you are. Forget Mm -hmm. the rules about time and posture. Just be in your body. There's something that you said that I am thinking about now. I think you said this might seem really simple. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately with practices like this around how if they don't have a hustle mentality Mm -hmm. to them Mm -hmm. or all the guidelines or all the tips and all the things that we have this narrative like, oh, that's just too easy. It couldn't be impactful, but it's Mm -hmm. actually for that exact reason that it is. 
first tea of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we forget that all this hustle and schedules and computers is like really new for humans. <laughs> Most of our history, we did work really hard and then we chilled super hard. We spent a lot of time just like sitting by the fire, chilling out, dancing or breathing. We didn't always have technology and like all the information. We have way too much information right now. <laughs> so many stimuli and inputs and all this stuff. Just keep it simple. We are very complex beings and living in a complex world. Even the natural world is so complex, but we can actually just tune in and just be with it in simple ways and we'll truly be able to access that complexity and get into the flow just by simply entering then we're in it it's like the part of finding nemo where the turtles are in the yes whatever that thing is you have to psych yourself up to do a really simple thing which is just swim into this flow it's so interesting though that you said that because one of the things i was wondering about is mm-hmm. all of the things we do to cope with life mm-hmm. you've experienced really challenging dynamics in the nonprofit sector. Mm -hmm. So have I, so have probably every single listener from bullying to toxic leadership structures to harassment and abuse Mm -hmm. and all of that. And I would say personally for me, I think when I stayed disembodied, it Mm -hmm. made me feel like I could survive the other things. And when I would have those moments, those glimpses of full immersion in my life, full presence. In some ways, they really freaked me out because it made it so clear all the other pieces that weren't working. And so how do you support folks around that? And I was just reading Nonprofit AF by Vule, champion of making jokes about the nonprofit industry and saying important things. And he wrote somewhere, we take the work seriously, but not ourselves. And, And I think There's a piece of that feels really resonant because my whole thing is this is, we really need to start playing. We just need to start playing and experimenting and trying things on and seeing how they feel and taking a note. How did this thing feel? I tried embodiment on, I tried to take a deep breath and I was like immediately hit with like way too much. And then we just write that down. Did a deep breath, felt too many feelings, went back to disembodiment. And that is what it is. Holding the both and is absolutely primary first block of the work that we do is we need to understand that there is no truth, right? Mm -hmm. There is no right. There is no wrong. There is just what is. And every moment has its own unique set of conditions and opportunities. And all that we are invited into is to be in the moment and to make a choice and to see how that choice goes. Does it work? Mm. Do I feel better? Do I feel more connected? Was it a protective choice? Was it a proactive choice? Was it value aligned? Was it 
where I want to be or how I want to be. And if it wasn't, or if it didn't bring me closer to the world that I want to live in, is that because that's what my capacity is right now. And I actually don't have capacity to make another decision. And that is totally real and valid and true. If that's true for you, that is true in that moment, but it may not be true the next moment. So that's the beauty of coming back and being like every, it is true that I want to live an embodied life. And it is also true that like right now I can't do it because I have Mm -hmm. X, Y, and Z thing. Maybe being disembodied keeps me safe for now. And that is okay. But tomorrow might be different. I think we get really set in this is the way that it is. This is how it's going to be. There's no other option. One way or my way or the highway is a one way road. And here I am. And that's it. And with my clients, everything is everything. <laughs> Lauren Hill, right? Mm-hmm. Everything is everything all the time. How can we try on and play with just holding that truth, holding that idea. Mm. I just need to get comfortable with the idea that maybe there isn't a right answer here. And my clients can spend weeks, months just playing with that. What would it feel like right now if I just accepted that there was no right answer Mm. or there was no one truth? What if I just felt into that in this moment, in the beginning? And maybe I play with that for months before Mm. I get anywhere else. There's nowhere to go except to just keep continue being. I find a lot of times that I don't have enough words (laughs) to describe Mm. what we're doing or how we're doing it, but it is really getting comfortable with mystery Mm. and leaning in. I'm not going to know right now, Mm. but I'm going to keep waking up and keep making a choice. I understand that I have many choices here and even getting to a place where you recognize that you're choosing to stay disembodied because it's keeping you safe is a step towards embodiment. (laughs) My body and my being right now is keeping me safe. And I'm going to honor and respect and value that I am being kept safe right now. That is huge. And I'm going to be aware of it. And that is so countercultural. Yeah, I could not agree more. My coach certification is in something called energy leadership. And there are these seven levels of energy and the lowest levels are filled with mostly catabolic energy. The highest levels are filled with anabolic energy. So a level one is like really like victimhood, martyrdom, Mm -hmm. perfectionism, judgment, black and white thinking a lot of what you're talking about. And the higher levels of anabolic are joy, connection, mutual benefit, co-liberation, like those Mm -hmm. pieces. But what I say a lot is like no energy level is bad. There are moments in our life where we want to call in that level one protective energy because we are so tender. Maybe we just need to like have a full pity party for ourselves. And I do, but it is, it's all about conscious choice and just not being triggered involuntarily or in a disembodied way into that level one, but to choose it is so fundamentally different. It just at its core is so fundamentally different than experiencing that without that choice. I'm curious. And one of the things that, and I remember when I got yoga teacher certified in Guatemala, actually this Mm -hmm. thing I kept asking, which was how to find the balance between social change work, which inherently feels judgmental to a certain Mm. extent, right? Because Mm -hmm. you are saying this thing is wrong. This thing that is happening in our society, it is wrong. So there's judgment there, right? Even we say this nonprofit culture is toxic. This, that there are all these, I feel like accepted forms of judgment. And Mm. then what I found to be so challenging was tapping in and out of that to Mm -hmm. that acceptance. It's all gray, lots of choices, anything is possible. I do it in different ways in my work 
now, but I just remember asking so often, okay, but how do I accept something that is wrong? And they Mm. would be like, there is no universal truth. And I would be like, really? Because (laughs) it feels like these certain things in society are actually very wrong. How do we grapple with that? Yeah, it's messy. (laughs) And And the thing is, we don't live in a culture where being messy is acceptable. Like we just don't, we don't live in that. We don't live in that world. We can. I'm like, let's build it. I want to live in a world where I can show up with here are the list of questions I have and not be expected to answer any of them. Can we just be in our bodies with our journals and our yoga mats or whatever it is for you? Some dance music. Like sometimes I have my, I'm feeling most aligned and alive in the questions when I'm like, breaking it down to diamonds by Rihanna. It's Mm. just everything. But I'll say I was just listening to your podcast with Rhea Wong and Mm. y'all were talking about how you're just not going to be liked by everybody at -hmm. some point. You're mentioning that. And I think for me, like one of the pieces that I also workshop with my folks is people are just going to feel a way about you being open to Mm. multiple truths. The, The reality is that much of the work towards social justice or liberation and systems change, nonprofit, whatever you call it, we've also gotten really polarized is what I'm saying. Mm. And, And you're right. Like we've made decisions. This is good. And this is bad. And some of those decisions are important, like mass incarceration, bad police Mm. violence, bad. And where I think that the non-duality comes in, even making those statements is like, it is true. Like my dad's a police officer. So I became politicized. And my uncle is also a police officer. And I spent a lot of time in the precinct growing up just with at work with my dad. So I know a lot of police officers like really intimately. And there are pieces of that knowledge that I can't unknow or unexperience, right? Like I will always remember those people and know them as people who believed, perhaps foolishly, I'm ready for that conversation, people who believed that they were protecting and serving. Mm. And that their training enabled them to protect and serve. I can pull up dozens of articles and lived experiences that prove that the work that they were doing was the opposite. They were not protecting people and they were not serving people. I can get really angry and look at those statistics and be like, all right, this is what we need to do. And I can get a bunch of people behind me who think, yes, this is the plan. This is the one truth. This is the one way of handling this situation and everything else is trash. So I'm even going to polarize myself against other organizations doing work in the same field because (laughs) this is the way and the truth and the light. And anybody who does anything different is just Mm. not even worth the air that they breathe. And that is not liberation. That's not what liberation looks like. That's not the world that I'm moving towards. And so I navigate these spaces and always have navigated the spaces that I'm in aware that people are not going to agree with me. People are not going to agree with what I, with me holding more questions than answers, particularly in the field that I was in, which was restorative justice, transformative justice, which overlap talking about mass incarceration and criminal justice system. And non-duality is not a conversation that we're having as a sector or a movement. And it really, for me, is the crux of the work. Like nothing, that is where I begin my work and journey is understanding that like multiple things are true about any given situation. And one of those Mm. truths is that there are going to be people who think that me holding multiple truths is trash (laughs) and not great. I know in my body, I remember what it felt like to be in that polarizing place 
Because that's where I was. I was so hateful and bitter and angry and resentful. And it just destroyed me. It literally destroyed me. My nervous system shut down. I was not able to function the same way. And I really believe that is the natural end of all that agony and suffering. And we're seeing burnout happen everywhere. It's happening everywhere. And nobody knows what to do. So people are leaving this work, movement work in droves. They're going anywhere else and they're just getting their corporate job and surviving, like Mm. finding a place that pays them well so that they can just like numb their way through and do their obligatory donations here and there. But that's not what I want. (laughs) That's not what I want for us. I want us all to be here with our whole selves making change and creating a world where every single body is free. And when I say every single body, police officer bodies too. Hopefully they're not police officers then. They're just, they're something else, but they are there. Like those people Mm -hmm. who formerly wore police uniforms are also in a world where everybody is free. And so what is it gonna take for us to get there? And I don't have an answer. I have a lot of questions and I am ready to sit in those questions and just explore and try things on and have them fail. Sometimes I try things on and it's just a complete flop and it did the exact opposite and I have to do lots of apologies and and learn a lot more before I can try something else on again. Yeah. First of all, I will just say, I'm so sorry to hear about your like health experience and Mm, just your experience mm -hmm. in the sector and- I share so many pieces of that too. And the way it just wreaked havoc on my body when my mind wouldn't connect. It was Mm. like my body finally got so loud. It was just like, if you are not going to listen to all the subtle ways we Mm -hmm. have been telling you this is Mm -hmm. not okay, then we're just going to literally destroy your nervous system until you Mm -hmm. can't put your hands. And then you probably can't send another email. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So many signs. Um, There were so many signs. There were so many signs. That to me breaks my heart. And I think also demonstrates the necessity of the work and the piece that like, yeah, like I think what you're talking about is really scary. I'm just going to say that. I think that the thing we have to remember is that the reality is also really scary. Yeah, And it's that whole devil that we know, devil that we don't know. I hear people say all the time, that sounds so uncomfortable. I'm like, how comfortable for on a scale of zero to 10, do you feel in this present moment? Yes, You're not very comfortable. So it's, yes, this is really uncomfortable, but also we're we're suffering. You're suffering now. Mm -hmm. And so that is just something I wanted to double click on for folks who maybe had some of those feelings around like that reality sounds really scary is just that it's an unknown potential pain being compared to our very real current pain yeah yes here's the thing like particularly in the U.S. particularly white folks are conditioned to seek comfort at all costs and to avoid discomfort and it's not just that we like seek comfort and avoid discomfort it's that we we seek comfort and avoid discomfort because we are literally given zero skills like no skills to be uncomfortable and it's not forced upon us that's privilege we get to opt out of discomfort so this reality that we're living in is like not great for anyone but it is really awful for folks that don't have my social position as a white woman like it is terrible and it has been terrible for those folks since they were born so they didn't have a choice they couldn't opt out of discomfort and i'm thinking Mm. particularly of my colleagues who are black women there was no like yes please i would like to take the comfortable Mm. path let me just Mm. uh, that was just not an option like it was for folks of a different social position 
And class matters here too. I'm going to name that, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just race. It's like also class matters. So there is a huge piece of this work for us, for me and the folks that I work with in my, in my program, the incubator is figuring out how to be able to settle my nervous system, which is why embodiment is so important because mm. I don't even know what's happening in my body. <laughs> like there is no way I'm going to be able to handle it and name it and settle it enough so that I can sit there and receive feedback. If I can't even mm. name the thing that's happening, if I can't show up to that thing, forget about it, which is why we see so many folks go through trainings and workshops and they've read the books and they can quote it back to you and they can tell you all of these things. And then they do these egregiously harmful things. I had a boss once tell me, a white woman who was the ED, tell me to mentor on how to be more professional and their communication patterns. And my colleagues were two black women who like were fresh out of college. So they were, there was an age difference and there was a race difference. And I just looked at her and I was like, I'm just going to repeat back what you asked me <laughs> right now. I'm going to reflect back this question. And this boss was so disembodied that she was like, yeah, I don't see the problem there. When she would just go on about how other organizations were totally harmful, like you can just imagine. But my point is like, she had no skills. So her body, upon hearing me reflect that back to her, went into defense mode immediately and just denied. That didn't happen. Mm. Because that thing that you're reflecting back to me doesn't match with how I see myself. So I'm just going to reject that it even happened and, and, and basically tell you that you're wrong and make you question your perspective, which is hello, gaslighting. <laughs> like, and it happens all the time. But all that to say, like, the work is just being able to first accept failure. Like, we're going to fail. It's going to mm. keep happening over and over again for the rest of our lives. And it's good. It's growth. It's change. Like the butterfly was a caterpillar before. So just let it happen and see how you can just like, okay, I'm going to fail. And when I fail, here's what I need to do to be able to stay present in that moment. And we make strategic plans. We make all these different mm. plans. Like we never plan for failure in our relationships. Mm and in our work and we're just gonna mess up and when we do we should have a plan we should know mm. hey when I mess up here's what I do I will attack myself <laughs> like externally I will bow down you're so right like a dog who's done something wrong oh my god I'm the worst I'm the terrible human but I don't say any of that out loud I just bow down and like cower and internally there's just like a shame shitstorm <laughs> that's just mm. like twirling around but knowing this is what happens in my body. Like, I'm going to write it down. Like someone, someone comes to me with accountability. I'm going to, I know this is what I do. And mm. so that when it happens, I can be like, Oh, Hey, like, mm. there you are. Like, I see you. We'll get to you later. We're just going to put you aside for a second. I'm going to be present in this conversation. I'm going to take it in. I'm going to apologize. And I, I wrote an article for community centric fundraising on this very topic because mm. I was like, people need a guide. Mm. I needed a guide. Having that steps and that plan to move through makes it so much easier for us when we can't really be in our body to be like, okay, I know this is going to happen. First I do this and then I do this and then I do that and then I do that. And then as we become more embodied and more able to be inside our body, we can trust our intuition. We can trust our body to help us move through it more organically. But in the meantime, absolutely have a plan. <laughs> because if you're like me, you weren't given any skills to handle conflict or discomfort or accountability. And without a map, we are lost. 
and likely to make harm much worse than it needed to be. So make it easy, make a map, have a map on hand, and then just keep using that map until you can be in your body enough to be in the moment and move organically from there. But I think just expecting failure and knowing what happens in your body when that happens and just like having a plan for it is some of the best things we can do, especially for folks that live in bodies that have a social position or access to things that other bodies don't. That means that we're going to do stuff that's harmful. It's just going to happen. Okay. I could keep talking to you forever, but we want to get you out into the Austin sunshine. Thank you so much for this Mm. conversation and tell everyone where they can find you and the best way to connect with you. Yeah. So first of all, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. LinkedIn is my my playground. I don't have really any other social media that I use. And you can just search my name, which you should probably look at the show notes for because it's really long, hard to spell. But yeah, search my name in LinkedIn and you'll find me. And I'm there a lot. Please send me a message or a connection request. I'm down for community always and building relationships and just answering questions. And the interdependence incubator is for white women and non-binary people who have done the work, have engaged with DEI work, have, are trying to learn and feel still just like overwhelmed. They're, they're maybe they're feeling like they're burning out. There is so much information and so much to be doing. And I just, I don't really know where to even begin. (laughs) If you're Mm -hmm. there, or if you've been trying to begin and you're just hitting lots of roads, roadblocks and walls, and just feeling still living a value aligned life is hard and maybe even impossible, then the interdependence incubator is for you. And we do all the things that we've touched on in this conversation and more to rewire our neural pathways and get inside our bodies and build a world where everybody can be free through the practice of freedom, really. Awesome. And I will include links to all of that below, as well as links to the article Mm -hmm. that you wrote for community-centric fundraising as well. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for this conversation. There was a lot of curiosity and exploration in this episode. So I want to make sure you're walking away with some of the takeaways. Here's what's on the top of my list. Number one, there is no separating the personal and the collective experiences ripple out. Number two, if you want to start the journey towards full embodiment, you can just start by taking a breath and staying present with it. Number three, it takes courage to sit with unanswered questions, but it is the only way to true liberation. And then number four, I want to double click on Rebecca's advice on how to break cycles of defensiveness and gaslighting. It starts with the same acceptance of that inevitability of failure and then learning how to stay present when you mess up. The next step is to make a plan to respond constructively rather than beating yourself up and finding ways to remain aware and take accountability when shame storms in. And lastly, stay present in your plan and anchored in conversation as you deal with the situation. Okay, there are so many more takeaways from this episode. Head on over to ValerieErickson.com backslash podcast to get access to all of the show notes right now. You'll also find more information there about Rebecca and learn more about the Interdependent Incubator. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. 
Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.